despite uh, COVID and we're able to enjoy some time with at least a few friends and family. We will uh, be in Acts 27 today, so we're in the second to last chapter. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me there. And if you grabbed one of those blue ones in the back, we are on page 545 in those Bibles. We are a couple of messages away from finishing up uh, the book of Acts. Hope that it's been a blessing to you as it's been uh, to me. Uh, At least to modern ears, the Titanic is probably the most famous of all uh, shipwrecks. Train wrecks and plane crashes are awful, but shipwrecks are far worse. Typically, if a plane goes down, you die at impact, but not so with a ship. Dying on a ship takes some time, and death by drowning sounds like one of the most horrendous ways you could possibly go. The Titanic's maiden voyage was from England to New York City, and as you know, this was supposed to be the unsinkable ship. But on its very first long trip, it struck an iceberg on the starboard side at 2.20 a.m., causing at least five compartments to rupture. As water began to fill those compartments, it pulled the nose of the ship down a little bit, which then caused the next compartment to fill, which pushed it further down, and that process repeated itself until the unthinkable happened. The ship's three propellers were hoisted up in the air, glistening in the moonlight as people began trying to get on the few lifeboards, lifeboats that uh, were still available. And when things seemed like it couldn't get any worse, the pressure from the ship being pulled in the water caused it to split into two. It took two hours and 40 minutes for the final piece of the ship to be swallowed up by the sea. And then some 1,500 people died in the frigid water. Are you glad you came this morning? Uh, Because these storms at sea can be so severe, it uh, is not uncommon to read about them. And that's true even on the pages of the Bible. Think to the Old Testament, for example. We have uh, probably the most famous story of a problem at sea took place when God told Jonah, the prophet, to go to Nineveh and preach about repentance so that the Assyrians would turn from sin and find their trust in him. He didn't want them to be forgiven like he had been, and so he ran the opposite way, boarding a ship headed for uh, the complete opposite end of the globe. But friends, you can't outsail God. God sent a storm and brought discipline upon Jonah, and the boat was nearly destroyed. The seas were only calmed when Jonah came out with his sin and then plunged himself into the water. He was brought to justice that day, we might say. But not every storm is an act of divine judgment. Some storms are just there. We're not told exactly why. That's the case today with Acts chapter 27. This is the the most famous shipwreck in the New Testament. Acts 27 records Paul's perilous journey at sea. He had finally been released from Caesarea and was being transferred uh, to Rome. Because the story is so well told, the details are so explicit and graphic, some regard this 
as not only the most detailed account of a shipwreck in the Bible, but the most detailed account we have in all of antiquity. Now, I'm not an expert on shipwrecks, so I, I can't really claim whether that's valid or not. However, we do know, because God put this in the Bible, that it is certainly the most profitable story for us to uncover. It all began when the governor of Caesarea Festus finally decided, well, I'm going to send Paul to Rome. So Paul, along with some other prisoners, were delivered to the centurion named Julius, and then they boarded a ship headed up the Asian coast. The thinking was, you're on a small boat, but you'll make it eventually to a large port city where you can get on a bigger boat that would take you all the way to Rome. You may remember that Paul had been in prison for years at this point. He'd been forced to appeal to Nero because that was the only way out of the situation he was in. But not more than 48 hours after departure, things began to get choppy at sea. A few ports in, they came across a much larger ship headed for Italy. It was a grain barge. And Paul and his friends were transferred to that boat in order to be taken all the way to Rome. But the winds were not favorable. Uh, remember that uh, what we think of today as boats or ships, this was not at all what it was like some 2,000 years ago. You didn't board the carnival to eat all you can and slide water slides. You uh, were on a ship that was caught up in wherever the wind would take it. But the winds were blowing against this time of year where you wanted to go. And so eventually this tiny boat creeped ever so slowly to a place on the south side of Crete called Fair Havens. Fair Havens was a tiny unprotected port, uh, not at all where you'd want to spend the whole winter waiting out the weather. It was late October by this point, probably the year 59. And everyone knew that it was too late in the season to travel. Because the winds blew from west to east at this time of year, it made it almost impossible to make it across the open ocean. It was extremely risky. But fair havens, it turns out, ironically, wasn't all that fair. It was a small town, wasn't much to do, and the port was open, meaning it wasn't protected in a nice cove where the ship would be safe for the winter. And so the ship's owner wanted to make sure they got to a better port. Despite Paul's admonition, the pilot, the ship owner, and the centurion all decided when the winds calmed down, they would make a dart for it. They would try to travel some 40 miles up, ironically, to another city that was much larger called Phoenix. Did you know there was another Phoenix? Phoenix on the island of Crete was some 40 miles away. And it was in a much better spot where they could wait out the winter. And so finally one day, the, the winds calmed, and so they decided to go for it. Now, if you were reading Acts 27, and you could hear the musical score as if it was a movie, then when that boat began pulling out that day, the ominous music would start in the background. Let's pick up the story in verse 13. Look with me there if you would. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, 
they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. So far, so good. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Nor'easter, just makes you want to say, aye, doesn't it? Called the Nor'easter, struck down from the land. Mount Ida is the highest peak in the island of Crete, some 8,000 feet above sea level. And there's lots of accounts from this era of time that uh, the winds would often come down from the mountain and the cold air would meet the warm air of the sea, creating bad storms. In fact, so significant were the storms in this region that they became part of Greek mythology. Zeus was said to have been born and protected at the caves of Mount Ida. And he was said to create these storms in order to keep himself safe. One of those terrible storms struck that very day. Look with me at verse 15. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Clauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used support to undergird the ship. And then, fearing that they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven by, uh, driven along. Now, I don't know about you, but not much of that means anything to me. Uh, having not ever been a sailor or studied uh, nautical issues, I had to spend some time looking up what in the world are they describing. And essentially what's being said here is, they were so afraid that the storm was going to break the ship apart that they brought up the lifeboat and then took the ropes that normally held it and wrapped them underneath the boat, the big boat, the ship, all the way around in hopes of tying it together so that as the waves pounded against the wood, the wood would be strengthened and held together by the ropes. Then they lowered the anchors as far as they could just to try to give the boat more weight. Trying to do anything they could to slow the spread of the boat further west out into the open water. Verse 18. Now, since we were violently storm-tossed, that doesn't sound good, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. I'm convinced that one of the worst feelings in the world is being seasick. If you've ever been out in the open ocean and you don't have a strong stomach, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. The, the rocking of the boat like this on the waves, is it's, it's the perfect motion to churn up food you don't even remember eating. And then on top of that, you've got the nausea, the dizziness that seem to last for hours and hours and hours. Now, if you've ever felt like that on an afternoon of deep sea fishing, imagine being on a ship that's taken on water in the middle of a storm in an open, light, in an open sea, and that wasn't just going on for an afternoon. Now, we'll read later in the text that this lasted two weeks. A storm so terrible that for two weeks, 
you didn't see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all that you had was the bobbing up and down, the punishing wind, rain, and the ship being beat about. All the sounds you hear beyond the gale force winds are people moaning in motion sickness and the captain yelling, throw another object overboard. Because as the water was in the ship, you had to get objects out of the ship in hopes that you would stay alive. Verse 20, when neither sun nor star appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It doesn't get any grimmer than that. Friend, if you are at your wit's end this morning, if the storms of life have beat you up, that's where these nearly 300 people on the ship found themselves. All sense of hope was abandoned. The only thing they could count on was that every violent upward motion caused by the wave would be met with an equally jarring downward motion of the ship towards the depth of the Mediterranean. And there's only so much of that people can take. These passengers resigned themselves to what felt like the inevitable, that grim death of drowning at sea. Now notice in verse 20, the important pronoun, our. Our. This is one of a few places in all of Luke where Luke, the human author, sort of peels back the story a little bit and says, I was there. I was part of this. I experienced it myself. And Luke's hope was gone. The Titanic's passengers knew two hours and 40 minutes of this. But Luke knew two weeks. If you've heard some uh, knockoff version of Christianity that paints this tranquil picture that says nothing ever bad, nothing bad will ever happen to you if you follow Jesus. And Luke, Luke says in Acts 27, uh, you've got a big problem with that version of Christianity because that's not what I experienced. Not only had Paul been wrongly imprisoned and left seemingly to rot in a Roman cell, now he's finally out, headed towards what looks like would eventually lead to his freedom only to meet this storm on the sea. Few of you may remember the old hymn, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. That hymn is a liar. That's not true. That's not how Christianity actually works. Clearly, following God does not give you a hall pass to skip the trials of life. Disappointments, tragedies, sicknesses, and crises still billow forward on both the just and the unjust. But, way back in Acts chapter 23, which for us is a mere turning of a few pages, but for Paul was some three years earlier, God had told Paul, take courage, you must testify about me in Rome. That unique promise from Christ no doubt rang in Paul's ears, as he 
endured some two years of custody in Caesarea. And it, no doubt, provided him with confidence on the sea. Paul would preach the gospel in Rome. There was no doubt about it. But the journey from Caesarea to Rome, he was given no guarantees about. God gave Paul no promise of smooth sailing or Amazon Prime expedited next day shipping. Paul would make it to the seat of the Roman Empire. And there, from that very seat, he would preach about the real king. But the journey there, he had no idea what it would entail. Beloved, since you are in Christ, God has promised you entrance into heaven. No question about it. That is your ultimate destination. Amen? But the way there invariably will include both high seas and tranquil bays, sleepless nights and cozy naps, tremendous pain, and stunning peace. In the book of Matthew, uh, just days before his death, Jesus gathered his disciples around him to give, him, give them a pep talk. He told them, uh, the temple's going to be destroyed. There'll be wars. There'll be rumors of more wars. Kingdom will rise against kingdom, nation against nation. Earthquakes, famine, persecution, even martyrdom. This was quite the talk. In the middle of all of those terrible predictions, Jesus said in Matthew 24, see that you are not alarmed. Church, such are the lives of Christians. In this life, hope arises out of ashes, broken dreams, stormy seas. Every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before. I would encourage you sometime today to take uh, the 10 minutes or so it might take you to read all of Acts 27 so you get the details. But Paul emerged on the ship in the middle of that trial as the uh, steady, calm voice of peace and reason and confidence. Isn't that what we look for in leaders? That, That even in crazy circumstances. They're calm. That's how Paul was. Look down at verse 33. We'll see what he did. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all, saying, take some food. Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. When we were in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Maybe you've heard somebody uh, say about a fellow Christian that she is becoming so 
heavenly minded that she's no earthly good. Friends, that's not a thing. It doesn't exist. In these verses, we see practical Christianity at its finest. Paul, of all people, was surely caught up in the gospel. His mind was ultimately on Christ. He said elsewhere that he wanted to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And his aim in life was to join Jesus in the fellowship of His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. If there's a description of being heavenly-minded, that's it. And yet here in Acts 27, this one so heavenly-minded is concerned with the empty stomachs of 276 people. People who are rightly in touch with the spiritual reality are far more grounded in the real practical needs of people around them. Friend, if you want to become more and more and more human, more and more useful in the things that matter in life, then set your sights on Jesus. If you want to have a durable existence, then give yourself chiefly to heavenly reality. Now, for time's sake, we won't read all of the passage, but here's what happens. Uh, The ship sinks. With land in the distance, they could finally see there's a beach. We're going to go for it. So they let go of the anchors. They threw up the sail, and they made a mad dash as fast as they could to try to run this ship aground on the sandy bottom. Before they could reach that bay, though, the front of the ship struck a reef, lodged it there, and then the waves began to break up the back of the boat. Miraculously, after all this time, everyone lived. They either swam ashore or they grabbed a piece of the wood and then used it as a flotation device to kick themselves to land. If you let your eyes glance to the very end of the chapter, the last couple of words say that so it was that they were all brought safely to land. Except for the Apostle Paul. The other 275 passengers were all convinced they were going to die. But none of them did. It's an incredible story. But I think we've got to ask ourselves, so what? And Paul got on a boat. They had a rough few weeks. They puked a lot. And then they didn't die. What kind of enduring message might that give us? Well, maybe don't get on a boat. Now, you see, there's nothing in the Bible simply here to amuse us. And the Scriptures certainly are not a handbook for nautical survival techniques. So why in the world is Acts 27 here? Of, Of all the relatively little amount of information we have from the first three decades of the church's history, why does this story occupy an entire chapter. Well, from Paul's perspective, despite a horrendous couple of weeks, against all odds, God kept his promise to Paul. 
Friends, no human being can control the weather. But God has the whole world in his hands. God had promised Paul safe passage to Rome. And no storm could threaten the commitment that God had made. As one pastor put it, the record of Paul's shipwrecks in Acts 27 is intriguing history. But it's also a metaphor of what all Christians experience in their voyage through life. That brings us to what I think is the story's main idea, the truth that it presents that we can take home. It's that irrespective of the storms that may come, God will always keep His promises. Irrespective of the storms that may come, God will always keep His promises. The sovereign Lord is good for what He says He will do. Not a single one of God's promises will fail. Now that, of course, begs the question, well, what has God promised? Intuitively, certainly we know, God's not promised any of us that we'll make it to Rome to preach the gospel to the seat of the Roman Empire. And if that's the promise of Acts 27, then what good is this story to us? Well, that promise was unique to Paul since he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So what does God promise us? Well, friend, your mind might want to go to some particular new unique promise that God might give you about some upcoming issue in your life. Like, yes, I promise you'll get her as a wife. Or, Yes, you'll get into that school. Or yes, you'll have that job. Or yes, that's the house to buy. That might be where you'd be tempted to go. Is God capable of giving those kinds of promises? Yes, of course He is. The same God that promised a particular thing to Paul could, in fact, promise anything He wanted to, to you. But that kind of communication is not normative even in the pages of the Bible. It's not how God commonly interacts with us. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that the promise Paul received about getting to Rome is actually an inferior promise to the universal promises that you and I enjoy. That the function of that lesser promise in Paul's circumstance is not to tell us to look for those same kinds of things, but to drive down into the greater promises that God gives all people. For example, and if we confine ourselves just to the book of Acts, those 28 chapters, what are things that Luke writes God promises all people everywhere under any circumstances? Well, I pulled out just a few. Uh, for example, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're watching online, the book of Acts promises that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. You'll be saved not from the temporary storm at sea, but from the eternal lake of fire of God's judgment. That's a greater promise than a promise about a particular house or a spouse or a degree. Because that's a promise that will go on forever. Or how about if you're a Christian? 
Well, Christian, the book of Acts has promised you that you have been forgiven of every sin and that right now you enjoy the gift of the Spirit. God lives not around you, but in you. What a promise. Amen? Beloved, God's also promised you that one day you will receive a resurrected body and that on that same day, every act of injustice ever committed against you will meet the justice of God. That's why we don't have to be churned with bitterness and unforgiveness. Because God will right all wrongs. That's a better promise. And church, everything that God says in His Word will prove true. You can count on what God has said. As Paul himself wrote in the book of 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. You see, Jesus is the great guarantee that what God has promised to do, He will do. Because Jesus is the hero of the story. Now, in a church like ours, I think this brings us to a particular point. You see, probably for most of us uh, listening this morning, the struggle that we have in living out the truth of this passage isn't probably that we don't know what God's promised. Many of you know your Bible extremely well. I'm encouraged by how often you read it and how even in a pandemic you get together with another person or two or three and read the Bible weekly, discuss its meaning, try to work it out. So in all likelihood, you could probably name specific things Jesus has promised all people in Christ. And you might even know where those promises are found in your Bible. The the struggle we have is not a lack of information. You already know it. The struggle is more what sometimes theologians will call something called appropriation. Meaning, you, you cognitively know what God has said He will do. And yet there hasn't been a, a hugging of that promise in such a way that you've embraced it. You've taken it in. It's providing ongoing, daily confidence in your own walk with Christ. So that brings us to the last question I want to ask you. How do we appropriate the promises of the Bible to the ups and downs of everyday life? How do you take what you know to be true and actually live like it's true? We know we'll make it to heaven, but how do we not give up between here and there? Well, believe it or not, there's a couple of verses that we skipped that answer that question. Look at verse 21. Acts 27 verse 21 says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them. And said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong 
and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. These verses give us solid gold in terms of wisdom. Paul, by way of example, shows us how to keep calm amidst life's storms. Friends, we don't know what's around the corner. I mean, imagine, go back with me, one year. So the last weekend in November of last year. Who would have imagined what 2020 would bring? I mean, so many things we've been through we have not ever even comprehended as able to be events that would happen here. And yet here we are. And it certainly seems as though we are headed for improvement next year. But what might 2021 bring? What kind of storms have you faced personally? Have we faced corporately? Has the whole world faced? When we don't know what's around the corner, yet we want to have confidence in our eternal destination, what do we do? Well, Paul in these verses, by way of example, gives us three truths to rehearse to ourselves. Three things to have in the forefront of our minds to be repeating that we might make it through life between here and there. Again, Christian, your ultimate destination is not up for debate. God has you. You are secure. You will be His forever. But the particulars of how you get from here to there, you don't know. And life is not easy. So how do you not get beat up by life in such a way that you want to walk away from God? Well, Paul says in verse 23, I belong to God, and I am His servant. And then in verse 25, it will be exactly as I've been told. I think those are the three keys in terms of applying this passage, is to press those down in our own experience by rehearsing those truths of the gospel. Number one, I belong to God. Number two, I am a servant. Number three, it will be exactly as I've been told. Think with me briefly about each of those. The first one, I belong to God. How was it that the apostle had spent his life on what was good, godly, and profitable, and yet had been met with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle? I mean, imagine... All you want to do is build churches. Now that's your sole goal, is to make Christ known and see His people gathered together. And yet you've been locked up now for years. And then when you're finally let out on the way to what might lead to freedom, the perfect storm came. How do you not get so sick of that that you just walk away? Well, Paul stayed put and centered himself on the truth that he belonged to God. Like a bride to a bridegroom. Like a finger to a body. 
like a sheep to a shepherd. These are all ways the Scriptures describe you as belonging to God. And remember who God is. God is the one who's always been, who knows all things, who is infinitely wise, who has all power and is good, is merciful, is devoted to what is absolutely best for you. That's who you belong to. He's, he's got you. What kept Paul from a lack of hope was he told himself on that ship, I belong to God. And because he belonged to God, verse 23, the second half says, I am his servant. Friend, the Greek word for servant and worship is the same word. To be one who worships God is to be a servant. To be a servant is to worship. And so Paul recognized, because I belong to God, I will devote myself to His service. I will worship God by tending to the needs of people around me. Friends, that's what service does. It takes our eyes from being bent in on our own issues and, and lifts our perspective up and out so that we see people around us. When we're consumed with our own list of things that haven't gone well, then we fail to notice the ways God might use us to bless people around us. But when we're reminded we belong to God, we're not our own, we've been bought with a price, I want to glorify God with my body, then, friends, we begin to look around and see, you know what, I, I might have it bad, but they've got it worse. What could I do to help them? Friends, in a church like ours that's so diverse in terms of demographic and age range, we could learn from this. Not to be caught up in our own storms, but to look around to the needs of people around us. And to not think, well, if I'm devoted on God, then I won't be aware of what's around me. No, it's actually as we're devoted to God that we're more aware of what's around us. So Paul that day was concerned with a very practical thing, food. And he encouraged people to take heart by eating. How do we not give up in our journey from here to there? I belong to God. I am His servant, so I will worship. And then finally, it will be exactly as I've been told. Brother, sister, what God has declared to be universally true in His Word will be exactly that for you. Not one promise will fail. Does that mean the path from here to there will be easy? Smooth sailing? No. But God has so crafted your life that each and everything between here and there will be exactly what you need in order to grow up and mature in Christ and become all that God has for you. These are just a few of the great promises. If you're feeling storm 
rot this year. If you feel beat up and a bit seasick, commit those three things to memory. I belong to God. I am His servant. And it will be exactly as I've been told. As you rehearse those three promises over and over and over, then you too, like Paul, can deal with whatever life will bring. Because irrespective of the storms that may come, God will keep His promises. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that for the non-Christian in the room or watching online, that they would come to see that their great storm is not their circumstances. It's being under the fury and discipline of their Maker. Pray that you would open their eyes to see how good you are in the glorious opportunity to be welcomed into a right relationship with you. And God, for the fellow Christians in the room, I am sure that there are probably many today who are rather worn down and beat up and seasick. God, I pray in your great mercy that you would encourage them today. That they would see that they belong to you and that you are the very best one to belong to. That they would see that they have a new identity. That all of life is about worshiping and serving you. And that they'd be encouraged to be reminded today that it will be exactly as you've been told. Father, help us this week to work these truths out. Individually, yes, in our own circumstances, but even more so by speaking these words to each other that we might encourage each other to keep walking with Christ. Thank you that you saw Paul all the way to Rome. In order to that, we would see that you will see us all the way to heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.